Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Genesis 32. It's on page 47 in the Bibles provided for you. Genesis 32, beginning at verse 22. Uh, We're doing a sermon series right now called Too Good to Miss, which is where we're going backward in the lectionary, and I'm preaching on some of the texts that I didn't get to preach on while I was on sabbatical this summer, the idea being that these texts were too good to miss. Um, Hopefully you're agreeing to this point. Uh, This morning we're looking at a very familiar text, um, a very fascinating text. It's uh, uh, the story of Jacob wrestling with a mystery person. I mean, I don't want to spoil it for you. Uh, Not that it says who he wrestles with in the uh, heading to the text there or anything. Uh, before, but before we read, actually, I want to give you a little bit of background on what's going on. So at this point in the book of Genesis, Jacob is preparing to have a meeting with his estranged brother Esau. This is the brother from whom he stole the family's birthright. He stole the family's blessing. What is that? What is the birthright? It's kind of hard to explain. To put it really crudely, uh, we're talking about like millions of dollars worth of wealth and esteem and notoriety um, that Esau was supposed to get because he was the older brother, but Jacob swooped in there and he took it. Uh, They're twins. Esau was born just a few minutes before Jacob, but Jacob figured out a way with the help of his tricky mother to trick his brother and his father to get that blessing. Stole the inheritance. Now, um, as we read this text, this is some 20 years later, Um, and of course nobody in the family has spoken to each other since this happened. You can imagine it would be a total disaster. And Jacob, it's 20 years later, Jacob hears that his brother is on his way. His brother Esau is marching toward him. And Esau, in spite having his inheritance stolen, has done really well for himself. And Esau is taking with him 400 soldiers to go meet his brother. So Jacob has every reason to believe that his brother is on his way to kill him, which is what he promised he would do. And that's where we start reading. Genesis 32, beginning at verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford at the Jabbok River. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Then the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. 
Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. This is the word of the Lord. So I love reading and thinking about this story in the context of All Saints Sunday. I read in more than one place this week about how Jacob's story of guilt and of conflict and of loss is such an archetype for our stories, meaning it's a, it's a story that tells our stories. When we tell this story, we hear our stories in it. His story is our story. Jacob's story is one of the messiest and most chaotic in the whole Bible, and for that reason, his story is the perfect model for what the faith of a saint looks like, because it's always messy. Here's what I mean by that. Jacob was a deeply flawed person, like, like deeply flawed. And he was a scoundrel at times. And yet, strangely, God could not get enough of him. Like, like God couldn't help himself when it came to Jacob. He just loved Jacob. Everybody looked around and was like, why is God so crazy about Jacob? And everybody would go, I don't know. Why did God love Jacob so much? He loved him because he loved him because he loved him because he loved him. That's why. Even when Jacob did terrible things, he loved him. So like the way that a parent loves a child somehow even more when that child messes up, you know what I mean? And the way that a parent's love for a child can sometimes intensify when that child makes tragic mistakes. You know what I mean? God never stopped loving Jacob. And that's what makes us so much like Jacob. God couldn't help himself when it came to loving Jacob. Well, folks, God can't help himself when it comes to loving us. But that doesn't mean that God's beloved children don't reap what they sow when it comes to their mistakes. Our actions still have consequences. Jacob's actions still had consequences. We all know what it's like to reap what we sow. Sometimes, uh, even in adulthood, we're still paying the price for some of the mistakes of our youth. And it seems to me that's what's happening to Jacob in this text. It's been decades since he stole that birthright from his slightly older brother. And he's not a kid anymore. He's not that same person anymore. He's not that same fool anymore. He's a different kind of fool, but he's not that same fool anymore. He's been through so much. He's developed so much in his life. In many ways, he's become a completely different person, but... And this is how life works. Here come the consequences of his decisions. I know a lot of people who have to face consequences like this. Jacob reminds me uh, of, of an addict who has finally sobered up, which is great, 
But now he's having to make amends for all of the chaos that he's caused in the past. And that is really hard. But it's what you got to do. So Esau's on his way. And there's nothing that he can do about it. Well, there's a few things he can do about it. He gets strategic. First, he sends some messengers ahead to his approaching brother. And he gives those messengers millions upon millions of dollars to give to his angry brother, hoping that'll just kind of grease the skids a little bit. Then, Jacob divides all of his remaining possessions and property into two groups. And he sends them in opposite directions, thinking that if Esau attacks one of them, he won't be able to get the other. So at least he'll end up with 50% of what he had. And then, at the beginning of the text that we read, um, Jacob lets go of the very last thing that he wants to let go of. He calls his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children And he sends them just across the river, thinking that there needs to be at least a little distance between them and him in order to keep them safe. And that's all Jacob can do, just a little bit of strategizing. So after he does his strategies, after he sends the money, sends the possessions, and then moves his family ever so slightly to the left, Jacob is completely alone. More alone than he's been in 20 years. And he's completely in the dark. He was a millionaire without a cent. He was a patriarch without a family. It was just him, all alone, in the dark, waiting to see what he was about to reap. Let's pause right there. Barbara Brown Taylor talks about how we love to rush through some of these really unsettling Bible stories, like this one. We love to rush right through these really tense, really dark, in-between moments so that we so quickly can land safely on the other side, side, so that we so quickly can land, sooner rather than later, land safely with some sort of resolution where everything's okay. When the sun comes up in Peniel, we rush through those in-between moments even though the reality is, Taylor says, we actually live most of our lives in those in-between moments. We live most of our lives waiting to see what's going to happen next. We live most of our lives in the darkness, under-resourced. We are not people who walk around feeling like all of our problems have been resolved. We walk around, or rather, we limp around like people who are nervous to see what's going to happen next when the next shoe drops. And that's why Jacob's story is so valuable to us. Because Jacob found himself in what some people might call a liminal space. A liminal space. Maybe you've heard this term before. It's getting more and more use, this idea of a liminal space. Um, The word liminal comes from the Latin word which means threshold. And a liminal space is an in-between space. It's a space that's just beyond the threshold of what we're used to. 
just beyond the threshold of what we're used to. It's the space beyond the threshold of what we're familiar with. It's a space where people feel like they're caught in between the past and the future, and they don't quite understand what happened in the past, and they for sure don't know what's going to happen in the future, and they find themselves in this in-between space, and they don't know what to make of anything. I've heard of people talk about the labor and delivery room as being a liminal space, where suddenly you're handed this newborn baby, and you recognize that, yes, I am a parent now, but you have no idea what that actually means. I've heard of people talk about funeral services as liminal spaces where you feel kind of numb and you can recognize that your loved one's death will mean something very significant for you and that your life will never be the same somehow, but you have no idea what that's going to be like or how that's going to feel. For a lot of us, I think the pandemic was a liminal space we found ourselves stuck in neutral, right? And whether we wanted to or not, um, the pandemic made us question so many of our values, question so many of our priorities, and it gave us opportunities to make new ones, to make new values and new priorities, and to begin to try to live into those things, sometimes awkwardly. A liminal space often starts with an interruption and then it moves forward into the unknown. It's scary, and it's holy, all at the same time. Saints move through liminal spaces all the time. We don't ask for them, and they're almost never pleasant, but by God, they do help make us who we are. Like it or not, liminal spaces can be very, very formative for us. We experience loss or pain, which is totally the worst, but then we learn things about God and about ourselves. Uh, We become deeply disappointed or frustrated in a relationship with people who we love, but that somehow helps us refine our values and our priorities. Or we experience the deconstruction of our childhood faith, and that's really hard. But then we end up with a relationship with God that feels somehow at least more honest and more authentic and more gracious. This is sainthood. It's progress rather than perfection. I have a friend who likes to say that our stories make the most sense when they're told in retrospect. Don't you think that's true? Our stories make the most sense when they're told in retrospect, meaning we don't really know what to make of our liminal spaces until we've lived all the way through them and we can look back on them and then we can say, oh, now I kind of get it. I think this is especially true for Jacob in this text. Jacob tried hard to control all of the things that he could control. He sent the money. He moved his stuff over there. He moved the rest of his stuff over there. At the last minute, he sent his family over here. He tried to control all the things that he could possibly control, but in the end, he did not know what to expect. 
And I'm sure that he wasn't expecting that night that he would be wrestling with a stranger. And I'll bet that even more than Jacob was surprised that he was going to be wrestling, I'll bet he was way more surprised by who he would be wrestling. I mean, if anybody, this is going to be Esau, right? No. So early in the text that we read, it says that Jacob was wrestling an ish. It's the Hebrew word for man, just like ordinary word. Jacob is wrestling an ish. But by the end of the text, that ish isn't an ish anymore. That ish ends up being called Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for God. So Jacob was wrestling with God in that liminal space. And no doubt, for at least the first 85%, he had no idea that he was wrestling God in that liminal space. Talk about scary and talk about holy all at the same time. Maybe you know this. The name Jacob literally means to wrestle. That's what his name means. So throughout his entire life, Jacob was wrestling. Uh, His mother gave him that name because she could feel him wrestling with his twin brother in the womb. Uh, And then he wrestled with Esau later for the birthright. And then, if you read the story, he wrestled with his uncle Laban for the woman that he loved. And now he's wrestling with God. Wrestling is just what Jacob is. It's who he is. And in English, we don't see this as much, but when you read this text in Hebrew, it jumps right off the page at you because it literally says that God jacobed with jacob i've mentioned this before god jacobed with jacob it's funny it's a little bit satirical i think god jacobed with jacob god was playing jacob's game he was speaking jacob's language god knew exactly who jacob was and exactly how he was going to reach him You and I read this story about God wrestling a human being and we think this is the weirdest thing ever. This is so strange. Why on earth would God wrestle Jacob? It's strange for us. It is not strange for Jacob. Jacob was a wrestler. It's what he did. He wrestled with everything that came his way, including the divine creator of the universe. He wrestled with everything. And God knew that he had to Jacob Jacob. He had to wrestle the wrestler. And that's how God meets Jacob in this liminal space. And it makes me wonder, how is God meeting us in our liminal spaces? God weeps with those who weep. And he mourns with those who mourn. And he's angry with those who are angry. Not at, but with. And he's restless with those who are restless. I think that God deconstructs with those who deconstruct. And I think God reconstructs with those who reconstruct. We may not be able to tell the stories of our liminal spaces when we're in those liminal spaces, but in retrospect... 
we start to see where we met God. Because the story of Jacob tells us that God will meet us in those spaces. And his care for us will be precise and it will be gracious in those liminal spaces. It will be precise and personal and gracious. One of the strangest things about this text uh, is in verse 25, where um, these two are wrestling, right? And it says in verse 20, 25 that God realized that he couldn't overpower Jacob. Did you see that? God realized he's like in the middle of wrestling, wrestling a human who he had created, right, out of nothing. And God is in the middle of wrestling. He's like, huh, I'm not going to be able to beat this guy. That is the weirdest thing that you will read today, right? So there are all kinds of, of examples and situations in the Bible where people get too casual with God and they're incinerated on the spot. Like God is so powerful and he's so great and he's so holy that there, were, there are times when people approached something that represented God and they were incinerated on the spot. And yet, here's Jacob. He's like, oh, I'm a little tougher than this guy. That's good for me. It's crazy. Here's the thing. It seems strange to us that God would submit to Jacob. But in reality, that's exactly what God does for us all the time. Constantly. God submits for us. So in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate um, the Lord's Supper together. And that makes me think about how there's this, there's this story about one time before Jesus and his disciples had the Lord's Supper together, Jesus went around the table and he washed all of the disciples' feet. Now, this was a kind of thing that a slave would normally do. This was slave work, okay? Uh, but here's Jesus, the divine son of God, kneeling at, at, at the feet of these disgusting disciples, washing their disgusting feet. And so Jesus is going around the table and he's washing everyone's feet and then he gets to Peter. And Peter says what was obviously true, Jesus, this is crazy. This is totally crazy. You absolutely have to stop this and I will not allow you to wash my feet. If anything, Jesus, I will wash yours. If anything, I will submit to you. But then Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you don't get it. It has to be this way. I have to be the one who submits to you. And Peter said, absolutely not, Jesus. This is the dumbest thing in the world. This is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. And Peter was right. It is crazy. The Apostle Paul called it foolishness. It's utter foolishness that the creator of the universe would stoop to its creation, to his creation, and wash their feet. But it's exactly who our God is. Just like God, Jacob, Jacob, in that moment, he was also Petering Peter in that moment. meeting his children exactly where they are in this liminal space where we just don't understand what's going on and why is my Savior washing my feet? Why am I going through all of this pain? Why is my faith deconstructing around me? 
Why do I miss so horribly the saint who is no longer with me? God meets us in those liminal spaces. And he Jacob's Jacob, and he Peter's Peter, and he Stephen's Stephen, and he use you. So what are we going to do with our liminal spaces? How will we face these scary yet holy moments? And let's be honest, we are currently facing some scary yet holy moments. Here we are, two days before a very contentious midterm election. And it feels like there's a lot on the line. Am I right? It feels like there's a lot on the line. This is a liminal space. And here we are, as a congregation and as a denomination, in this season of discernment about what is faithfulness. What does faithfulness look like when it comes to human sexuality? And it feels like a lot is on the line. Because it is. This is a liminal space for us. And we might be able to look back on it someday and make some sense of it, but right now, all we can pray is that God is meeting us exactly where we are. And if any word of the Bible is true, then we can believe that he is. Because he is. We can't tell the stories yet. We'll only be able to tell them in retrospect. But what the story of Jacob shows us is that God will be with us in those liminal spaces. God is with us in those liminal spaces. And his care for us will be precise, and it will be personal, and it will be gracious for all of his saints. Can I get an amen? Amen. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this table, this scary and yet strange place where we don't quite understand who's where and who's doing what, We can't totally wrap our arms around the mystery. But all we know is that the divine creator of the universe is giving us calories and liquid to nourish us and strengthen us and promise us that you are here and you are with us. Jesus, continue to Jacob all of our Jacobs. Meet us exactly where we are. And remind us of your presence with us, your wrestling with us, your love and grace with us, even in liminal spaces. We thank you for this liminal space. In your name we pray. Amen.